You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Do it. And we're going to read uh, a few verses about an orderly service. And uh, this is how God wants us to worship. And when we gather to be with order. So 1 Corinthians, it's uh, in the New Testament. So the end of your Bible. After Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, 1 Corinthians. You'll find chapter 14. And we're looking at verse 26. And so it says something like this. So this is Paul talking to the Corinthians. And by the way, a big church, if you, if you leave Sunday school and go to big church, we are in 1 Corinthians. We are going over a sermon series, uh, 1 Corinthians. So this should be familiar to some of you. 1 Corinthians 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, so when you gather, when there's church, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So when you meet together, you have these different things, hymns, lessons, revelation, a tongue, an interpretation of tongues. Um, And if any speak in tongue, let there be two or at the most three, and each in turn, let someone interpret. And if there's no one to interpret, just let that person keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Verse 29 says, let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. And if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Then verse 33, an important verse here for us. For God is not the God of confusion, but the God of peace, or some translations say a God of order. And skipping ahead to kind of the end of this section, verse 40 says, let all things be done decently and in order. Everybody say, in order. Order. And so that's kind of uh, one of the smaller themes of what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue our church history series. So let's pray before the Lord. God, we come before you as your servants, as saints and sinners and people who just want to be more like you. God, ultimately, when we gather and we worship, we want to um, we want to reflect you. We want to glorify you. We want all things to be done in your name. We want things to be done with order because that's what you've asked us to do. And God, we want to please you with our lives, how we worship, what we do when we gather. So God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you so much for this morning, this day to learn, to receive from you. You're a good, awesome God, and we love you. And everybody screamed, amen. So welcome to the Mill Sunday School. Um, I, I'll tell you a quick story about this. In my mind, it's, it's very similar, and it all kind of relates this idea of wanting an ordered service. And a lot of denominations um, have something called a liturgy. And I think all churches have a liturgy, whether we know it or not. And some churches have a more traditional liturgy, a liturgy from uh, times long ago. Some, some liturgies come from hundreds of years ago. And many liturgies, like I'm thinking about the Presbyterians, the Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican, Lutheran, have these liturgies where if you go to a church service of this Sunday, they, know, they knew in advance what they were going to be talking about. And they know like what, you know, two weeks from now, what they'll be talking about, what they'll be doing in this service. And they know next season what they'll be talking about. And they know they could, they have like church service plans laid out for years to come 
kind of interesting, kind of cool, very ordered, very structured, um, very thought out. And this morning specifically, we're going to be talking about the Church of England and Anglicanism. And I thought it very relevant to mention something to you that probably many, many of you already know. But uh, one of the pastors at New Life, for many years, I've, I've known Glenn, for Glenn Packiam for many years, and for many years he's been very interested and curious about liturgy and, and worshiping with tradition, specifically in Anglican tradition, which is today's subject in our church history, the beginnings of the Anglican church. And so this might be news to you, maybe shocking news to some of you, but Glenn is on his way to becoming an Anglican priest. How many of you knew that? It's old news. Oh, half of you. Um, so here's Glenn uh, with Brady on uh, the left side there, the bishop of, of an Anglican church there on the right. There's Glenn in the middle. How many of you know Glenn? Do you even know who I'm talking about? Okay, good. Uh, lots of you do. Um, there's Glenn in the middle with this, with this it's called a collar on. And Glenn, for many years, uh, I think he, if you look at his, read his book, The Mystery of Faith, in fact, our, the, the quote of today comes from the, the mystery of faith. Maybe I'll read it to you uh, on the back of our notes. Uh, Discover the mystery of faith, page 16 by Glenn Packiam. says this. It'll help us get to where we're going here. The phrase lex ornandi, lex credenti, means quite literally the rule of prayer is the rule of faith. Maybe a better way to think of it is the way you pray and worship becomes the way you believe. And the way um, Glenn has been thinking about things and, and the direction he is going has been to go along with this common book of prayer, the Anglican liturgy, bringing that to New Life Downtown. If you've ever been to New Life Downtown, you know that it's a pretty cool combination of contemporary worship and songs as well as uh, liturgical elements. And for many years, Glenn has kind of jokingly said that he's a liturgy thief, like stealing from the Anglicans bits of their liturgy. And so now, finally, he is at a place where he's getting ordained, no longer a liturgy thief, um, is one way to put it. And so if this is surprising to you, if this is news to you, you could read Glenn's blog. Go to Glenn Packiam blog. You'll find it. There's, there's a video between uh, Glenn and Brady having a conversation. What does this mean? Is, is New Life becoming Anglican? No, we're not. Is New Life downtown becoming Anglican? No, we're not. How does this work? Well, Glenn is getting uh, uh, ordained uh, an Anglican priest, and that will build bridges between Anglicans and New Life. And Glenn is, remains a New Life pastor and getting the credentials of an Anglican priest. You can read all about that in, in detail. He answers a lot of questions about what does this really mean. But today's lesson, since we're in church history, we're talking about the Reformation, specifically the Reformation in England. I thought it very appropriate to share this and say this is, this is very, uh, I don't know, relevant to new life and where we are today. So today we're going to answer the questions, who are the Anglicans? What are the Anglicans? What do they believe? Where did they come from? So that's the gist of today's message. Sound fun? Okay, good. Fun, interesting, important. Those are all words that I would think. So welcome to Mill Sunday School. Officially, if you're new to Mill Sunday School, I just want to take a second and say, uh, here we are. Uh, there's a pa- papers that look like this on your uh, tables, and if you fill one out, you could bring it. There'll be people as you leave. Uh, they have a gift bag for you, uh, information about our church, uh, a book by our senior pastor, Brady Boyd. 
uh, as a gift to you to thank you for, for filling one of those cards out. If you want uh, to be on our email list, you could check that box. Or if, if you want to call, you could check that box and we'll, we'll greet you and tell you more about things going on around New Life. So that's if you're new and we are in a series, Church History, the month of March. We're talking about the Reformation. Um, and if you are really nerdy and you want extra assignments, here's a nerd alert for any of you. I realize that this announcement probably weekly probably applies to maybe five of you that are actually reading, but I'm going to continue. This is the textbook we're using, Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. And if you're reading along, uh, uh, the five of you that probably are, um, we're in chapter 27, which is all about the Church of England and how it started and the reformation of the church in England. And so that's that. So let's get started finally. Uh, with some review, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, we're talking about the Reformation, and if you've been with us, you're, you're following along, that, and you know that uh, in church history, the early church, and through, the, through Constantine's conversion of Christianity, the Roman Empire becomes Christian, and from that we get the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and we talked about in the Middle Ages, there really wasn't much of a choice. If you were Christian, you were Holy Roman Catholic, and if you weren't a Christian, you could be persecuted. So there was just like, if you were in Western Europe in the Middle Ages, you were a Roman Catholic Christian. Just by, that's what you were, that's what you did. Not too much choice in the matter. And uh, along comes Martin Luther, who we uh, talked about a couple weeks ago, nailed his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg. Remember when Martin, remember we had a couple weeks ago a, a, a fake Martin Luther come in, and we not, Sasha wrote out all 95 theses on this really long roll. Anybody, was anybody there for that? Okay, it was a really fun day. So Martin Luther, by his rebellion to the Catholic Church, saying, uh, and we're not going to do indulgences any longer. We don't, we don't think that that's right. Um, reforms and begins this reform and the protest of the Catholic Church. And so that happens in Germany, and it spreads like wildfire. People are saying, yeah, we're questioning the authority of the Catholic Church. Yeah, why do we do things? Why does the Pope have all authority? Why uh, are councils formed and, and they can come up with new doctrine? Why do we do things like this and that? And there's this huge questioning of authority and how we do church, and that will lead us right into um, the Reformation that happens in England right around the same time. I'll give you some dates in a second, but it's right around the time Martin Luther is nailing his 95 Theses, talked about Zwingli and Calvin. This is all the same time period. So the reform in England, can anybody point to England on this map? About half of you are pointing, half of you are not. Um, it's the green one, the island there. Um, it's, it's that one right there, England. If you're like, oh, I thought that was the other one. No, that's, that's the one. That's England. And this will be... Uh, an important distinction for us. I mean, we're Americans. We speak American and, uh, just kidding, we speak English. And so why do we speak English? Well, it's English settlers who came to America. And a lot of our history as Americans will come through England, through the pilgrims and revivals. And so that will be next month and the month after we will continue church history. But this, this will be very applicable to us as Americans as we talk about the Reformation that happens in England. Now, the other place that maybe you can point to uh, is Rome. Rome isn't on this map, but if you could point to it, how, where would you point? On the, it's, the, it's on the boot, yeah. Of the, if Italy is a big boot, uh, Rome is about on the kneecap there uh, of, of the boot foot of Italy. And England is 
is an island uh, north of Europe there. And money is going from England to Rome. People tithe to the Roman Catholic Church and the money is going to Italy. Authority is going to Italy. Here the, the Pope stands over all of the Christendom um, as head and leader in the, uh, throughout the Middle Ages. And people are really beginning to question. English people and another island north of Europe are really beginning to question, yeah, why do we have this leader who's so far away? Why is he the head? Why can't we have a head here in England? And the story of the English Reformation really has to do with this guy. Does anybody know who this guy is? King Henry VIII. Thank you. Yes, very good. The big, stout man with his hand on his belt and a beard. Would you mess with this guy? I would not mess with this guy. Um, So here's King Henry VIII. And those are the dates he ruled. Not lived, but ruled 1509. So pay attention to these dates, if you would, for just a second. 1509 to 1547. Do you remember when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg? 1517. I heard it. Good. So 1517 is right in these dates. So we're talking right around the same time as, as this Reformation is, is, is happening all over Europe. And it's, it may be hard for you to believe that in the Middle Ages, in Europe, there was really only one Holy Roman Catholic Church. You couldn't go down the road to the Baptists. You couldn't go up the road to the Presbyterians. You couldn't go uh, to find your Christian uh, charismatic clan of brothers and sisters. It was, for the most part, uh, it was one church, and there really was not any denominations yet. And here we are talking about the protest and the reform and all these denominations that will come from this reform. And so here we are in England with King Henry VIII. And this story of reform is going to be kind of interesting. You're going to be a little entertained for the next few minutes because it's kind of like a soap opera. It's kind of like a drama. If some of you may know this story even better than I and could come up here and tell me all the names of Henry VIII's wives and, and the children and make this family tree from memory because some of you are really into that. How many of you are really into it? Anybody? Like watch the movies of King Henry VIII? And the, and the, good. I see a couple hands. So here's the gist of the story. So get ready for some drama. Are you, do you, are you okay with drama? <laughs> so here's King Henry VIII and a nice lady he wants to marry. This happens to be Catherine of Aragon. And Catherine is uh, Ferdinand and Isabella's daughter. Ferdinand and Isabella are the, the king and queen of Spain. And to you know, back in the day, uh, people got married to, to make uh, political unions. And so here's the king of England marrying a daughter of the king and queen of Spain to unite England and Spain. And what's interesting is that this young lady is King Henry VIII's brother's wife. So if you have a brother, imagine your brother's wife, and then your brother dies, leaving your wife a widow. And King Henry VIII wants to continue this, this merger between England and Spain. And in, if, you, if you don't know this, uh, if you're Catholic, you can't marry your brother's wife. That's against canon law. So King Henry VIII goes to the Pope and says, Hey, bro, I really want to marry my bro's wife, bro. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, and the Pope allows it. The Pope makes an exception and allows King Henry VIII to marry this young lady, Catherine. Now here's where the real, I mean, if that's not already drama, marrying your brother's, marrying your dead brother's wife, if that's not already drama, there's lots more drama to come. Uh, That's just a tip of the iceberg of drama uh, in this whole story. Uh, So King Henry VIII 
uh, wants a son. And for some reason back then it was believed that the woman in, you know, if you know a little bit about, you know, when a man and a woman love each other very much, they come together. Uh, it was believed that the woman had somehow control over whether she had a boy or a girl, which is not true at all. If you know a little more of, you know, what happens when a man and a woman love each other. Um, and so they have a daughter, and we'll talk about this daughter later. Her name happens to be Mary, Mary Tudor. We'll talk about her in a little while. And so King Henry VIII really wants a son. And he believes that uh, Catherine uh, cannot give him a son, so he has an affair with a lady named Anne Boleyn. That's this lady. So different picture, different girl. Already starting to get into some drama here. Um, Has an affair with her. Uh, She becomes pregnant, and he secretively marries this Anne Boleyn. Lots of drama so far, right? Now, he needs a divorce from his first wife, Catherine, so he asks the Pope for a divorce. And if any of you know, uh, in the Catholic Church, do they allow divorce? No, they don't. They sure don't. And so the Pope says no. In fact, he excommunicates Henry VIII. So talk about drama on top of drama on top of a little more drama. And this story gets kind of interesting because King Henry VIII decides, well, if the Pope won't like me to get divorced and the Pope is all the way in Rome, you know, going back to the map, uh, his authority is in Rome, well, why can't I just kind of start my own church and be the head of that church and kind of make my own rules? I am paraphrasing, I'm stereotyping, I'm condensing here, but that's the gist of the story. Can anybody say a little scandalous? A little scandalous, just a little, maybe a lot. Um, So King Henry VIII declares the Supremacy Act, which he declares himself head of the church on which he controls the territory. So head of the Church of England. And by the way, the Church of England, another name for that would be an Anglican church. Um, And so this is the beginnings. And it's it's a little shady, but it'll get a lot better. Well, maybe it gets a little worse before it gets better. Because King Henry VIII... Uh, eventually has six wives. I mean, talk about like a Hollywood drama wedding. Uh, and this is even more drama because some of his wives he ends up killing. There's a, there's a cute little rhyme um, that the, the, these are the, the list of all six of his wives uh, and what he did with them. It's divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Have you heard that before? Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Like, so what happened to wife number two? She ends up getting beheaded. Uh, kind of a brutal story. Um, so the Church of England begins in somewhat shady, I mean, you would have to agree, that's a little shady of the beginnings of the Church of England. So here is a, a, a place in England, in London. Has anybody ever been here? Do you know what this is? The Westminster Abbey. Um, so places like this that were very Catholic. I mean, this was originally called St. Peter's, uh, what was it called? St. Peter's at Westminster. Uh, st- built, uh, started building in the Middle Ages in 1245. Uh, becomes, all of a sudden, Anglican, or the Church of England's property instead of Catholic property. Think about the implications for just a second of, of declaring that the Catholic Church in England is now no longer, and it is now under the authority and rule of the English king. And so we have here King Henry VIII above the Church of England. 
literally in this picture. So monks, priests, all of a sudden don't really have a job. And if you didn't go along with the king, you were either kicked out of the country, kind of like go back to Rome, which is like, well, maybe they've been, maybe they're more English than you are, and they've been like third, fourth, fifth, hundredth generation English, and they're, they're Catholic priests or monks, and they're told, you know, go back to Rome. Well, that's, that's kind of interesting because they're not really, you know, Roman or Italian, but they're, they're, they're Catholic, and the authority of the church rests in Rome, so they literally, or they figuratively, I guess, go back to Rome. Lots of churches and Catholic things were um, destroyed. People were killed if they did not go along with the king. And it all ends up being a pretty bad situation for those remaining Catholic in England. Uh, I, I have a figure that says over 500 monasteries were either gone or destroyed by 1539. And many of the monasteries and the monastery land, King Henry VIII assumed and then gave away to some of people, like political leaders, as like maybe some bribes, or just like, here's, here's uh, you know, come be on my side, be my best friend, here's a monastery and a bunch of land. Like, here's a million-dollar house and a five-million-dollar property. If someone gave me that, I'd probably be their friend. Um, maybe not. Anyways, so if you go to an Anglican church, I've only been to a few and I should caveat this with saying that the Anglican Church gives lots and lots of uh, autonomy. And so lots of lots of permission uh, within its own uh, Anglicanism. So if you go to an Anglican Church, I've been to just a couple. Uh, I, I grew up Catholic. And so I have lots of experiences with the Catholic Church. And so when I went to an Anglican Church, the particular one that I went to, I was like, wow, this is interesting. This seems a lot like a Catholic Church. And maybe it's because, well... King Henry VIII really didn't really have a lot of problem with the theology of the Catholic Church, but really the authority of the Pope in the Catholic Church. And so some Anglican churches are very Catholic. Some Anglican churches are very liberal. Some Anglican churches are very conservative. Some Anglican churches are uh, very contemporary. Maybe I already said that. Um, And so Glenn, um, our friend downtown, he is able to be an Anglican priest because there's a lot of autonomy given to Anglicans. It's, it's a very open, uh, diverse denomination. And so Glenn, if you read his blog, you'll find out, well, he was actually, it's actually the, the, um, the Rwandan Anglican church that he's getting his ordination through and being sent back to new life. It's like this really interesting, cool process, um, because there's so much autonomy within the Anglican Church. So I'm going somewhere with this in the direction of of kind of going back to liturgy and kind of going back to order. But first, I just wanted to open it back up to you, give you a chance to discuss amongst yourselves, for me to be quiet for just a minute. So here's a discussion question. We take these seriously. Uh, So get into groups. The bigger, the better. Join other tables if need be. Just welcome yourself in. We're all friends here. Um, So here's the question. Um, What reactions do you have as a Protestant, so I, I, if you, and I do assume, I don't uh, say that you're, you're all new lifers, but I assume like if you're a new lifer, you're a Protestant, and a Protestant um, isn't a Catholic. Protestant literally like protests the Catholic Church. That's where our name comes from. So as a Protestant, uh, what reactions do you have to the actions of the English king? 
And so let me help you a little bit. You could say, well, the actions of the English king are a little shady. But it led to this Protestant movement away from the Catholic Church. And we would say that some of those reforms, as Protestants, we would agree with and we would like. And yet, at the other hand, it's like, well, how he did it was somewhat shady. So present that as a question for your group. Um, Discuss this. I'll give you like two minutes. What reactions do you personally have as a Protestant to the actions of the English king? Ready? Get set. Discuss. All right. Anybody want to share? There's probably two sides. One side that says... Uh, maybe it was ultimately an okay thing. It led to some good, we would say as Protestants, this questioning of Catholic Pope authority and some of the wrongs that were happening. Um, and then there's the other side that says, well, maybe the ends don't justify the means. Let's go over here first. Yes. Thank you, good okay. sir. Well, the thought that I had Wait, was... Wait, I think I forgot to turn it on. No, it's on. All right, the thought that it's I on. had was that it was probably the biggest movement at the time against the Catholic Church. Sure. And so even though Martin Luther was doing his thing, um, like one voice sometimes doesn't really get heard. Like here in so our this is world, like a more, if just, somebody's protesting downtown, one guy, nobody really, you drive right by, you don't even pay attention. Right. But you get a whole crowd to, to protest, and people start listening. And so I yeah. think because it was probably the biggest movement at the time, it probably had the biggest impact on starting other, other resistances just, against the yeah, Catholic okay. Church. Good. All right. Thank you. Excellent. Yes, sir. Um. Well, we were discussing that it's always good to have some flexibility in the church because mm-hmm. I just got back from YWAM, and YWAM was teaching me when you have so many strict rules in the church, it becomes a cult. And so, like, for instance, being forced to stay married to the same woman within the church, um, that's really not the church's decision. It should be <laughs> the couple's decision. Okay. Okay. Who else? Aaron Higgins? At, at the time, the, the Catholic Church was very corrupt, um, as evidenced by Martin Luther's own disagreements with the Church. Um, so it's, it's kind of not a surprise that the, the corruption of the Church allowed the corruption of a king um, to think that he had the authority to go and form his own Church. Now, ultimately, I believe God worked through that and and like someone was saying it just a second ago about how it was a much larger crowd suddenly disobeying the church and breaking away from the church. And yeah. it encouraged others to start thinking for themselves and bred um, an individual relationship with Christ versus a have to go through a priest or have to go through the church to do it. So ultimately, um, the actions of the king were for the best, um, but maybe the individual action of the king weren't the best. Yeah, that's good. So I have um, a couple slides of some different people that had different reactions to the actions of the English king. The first one is this guy. Has anybody ever heard of Thomas More? At least heard the name. Some of you have. When I was a Catholic little boy uh, growing up, we went to St. Thomas More's uh, Catholic Church. Like our, our little congregation was named after this guy. And who is this guy? Well, he's a Catholic saint, and he's a Catholic saint who was English at the time of King Henry VIII. So I can imagine that you would guess that he opposed King Henry VIII, and you would be correct. 
He opposed King Henry VIII's assumption that he could create a supremacy act, making himself head of the English church. He opposed the the division and split between England and Rome. He disapproved of the divorce between uh, his first wife, King Henry VIII, and and Catherine. And he was a statesman, a lawyer, uh, the chancellor of England. And he stood up to the king, and for that was punished, King Henry VIII, Uh, did not like Thomas More standing up to him and did not like that so much so that he put him in prison for years in the the famous uh, Tower of London prison. He was sentenced there. Um, And it's this interesting, like I imagine if you were in England at the time, you would be very confused and like, okay, here we are uh, worshiping God as Christians and our authority at least on earth, is in Rome and a pope, and here's a king that decides he's just going to take that authority upon himself. And people like Thomas More stood up to the king and said, not so fast. You know, there is something to be said about church unity and the way things that have been done. And so that's Thomas More. Another very Catholic reaction to King Henry VIII is that after King Henry VIII dies, he does end up having a son, and that son rules for a very short time. But then this lady, Queen Mary Tudor, who, if you remember from just five minutes ago or ten minutes ago or so, we talked about Henry VIII and Catherine's first, that first marriage and their daughter. They had Mary. Here's Mary. She becomes king, uh, queen, if you're a woman, you're a queen. Uh, and she's queen from 1553 to 1558. If you count the years, there's about just five years there. And she is very Catholic. She, so King Henry VIII move, tries to split and make this division between England and Rome and, and does so successfully. And then Mary becomes queen and tries to reverse that action. Says, let's go back to being Catholic and, and restoring that relationship between England and Rome. And she uh, martyrs. Protestants that would not conform to her ways. In fact, one of her nicknames, maybe some of you know this, is Bloody Mary. You know, she is the original Bloody Mary hundreds and hundreds of years before the beverage, hundreds and hundreds of years before the silly mirror game in the dark. This is Mary Tudor, the original Bloody Mary, given that name because she persecuted um, Protestants, and we as New Lifers, we would be Protestants. And so she would sentence us to prison or to death because she wanted to restore that relationship between England and Rome. In fact, this book that many of you have probably heard of before, how many of you have heard of Fox's Book of Martyrs? Lots of you. This book comes out at the time. Uh, Fox writes this book of martyrs, tracing the history of martyrdom from the apostles up into the early church, all through the Middle Ages, and then says that these Protestant martyrs are in the same line as the apostles and the other martyrs throughout history, and we need to stand up and do what is right and be martyrs. So it's this book of encouragement, basically, retelling stories of martyrs that have gone before um, the, the persecutions and martyrdom of Bloody Mary. And the final guy that I want to talk about and spend a lot of time on this guy is Thomas Cranmer. In fact, he is the guy whose picture is on the cover of the notes. Um, And he, in a sense, is, you know, the the King Henry VIII story 
we've kind of said, it's a little shady. It's lots of drama. Well, this guy um, is kind of the hero in the eyes of many Anglicans. Uh, if you're a Church of England um, fan, he's the real hero of the story and the denomination of Anglicanism. And Thomas Kramer is, uh, goes along with King Henry VIII's separation from the Catholic Church. And uh, let me give you his dates. He lived 1489 to 1556. And he um, is known for writing the common book of prayer. So he takes uh, the ways the Catholic Church does worship. And so here we are connecting back with how we started today's lesson with like liturgy and with order. We should worship the Lord. And when we gather, what do we do? Well, we should be full of order. Um, And so Thomas Cranmer takes the Catholic way of doing worship. In fact, that's written out in a book called The Missal. And when I was a Catholic little boy, I thought that name was really fun. You know, the, the, somebody would say, turn to page 137 in your Missal. And me and my brother would look at each other and be like, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so Thomas Kramer takes the, the way the Catholic service goes, and he has this really cool job of rethinking how church services should be carried out, which is something that we as Protestants and at New Life, we all kind of get to do that. We all have that freedom um, as, as leaders and congregants to kind of ask questions. Like, if you, you know, you, you, for instance, have the freedom to start a small group if you wanted to, and to lead that small group kind of how you want to lead it, to think, okay, at my small group, I'm going to do this and not this. We're going to do a meal, and then we're going to do a Bible study. We're going to do worship, and then a Bible study, a Bible study, then worship. Or you, could, you have the freedom to do things how you want. Well, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church had the authority of how church was done, and they had an order and a system. And so when King Henry VIII makes the separation between Rome and England, people like Thomas Cranmer get to rethink how we're going to do church. And he very famously puts together this book, The Common Book of Prayer. Here's a picture of it, published originally in 1549, borrowing heavily from the way the Catholics uh, do worship the traditional, you know, historical Catholic Church, the way they do worship, and yet he brings to the table some very cool changes, some very well thought out changes of, of what we are going to do in worship. And I think it's this, if you talk to Glenn, and I've talked to Glenn, I, I, I hung out with him last night, um, and if you talk to Glenn and say, why, Glenn, are you becoming Anglican? And it's like, well, at the heart of it is his love for a liturgical service that has been very well thought out. And the liturgical service in the Anglican Church from the Common Book of Prayer, you have to admit, is very thought out. Takes pieces from the ancient early church going through the Catholic Church and then reforms it, puts it into English and rethinks. And it it has had several volumes, uh, editions, I mean, and it is kind of it has survived the test of time. So if you ask Glenn, well, you know, why are you, what's at the heart of wanting to become Anglican? Well, it's because he has had so much uh, passion and zeal for using the common book of prayer 
as a liturgical service, and he will jokingly say, you know, I, d- I don't want to be a liturgy thief anymore, stealing from the Anglicans and bringing some of their elements into, say, New Life Church downtown. And so that, at the heart of it is like, I, I want to you know, fully embrace this and, and bring this and, and, and build bridges between New Life and Anglicans and start discussions. And so here's the question for you. One more discussion question. Um, and hopefully an easy one for you. If you're at all familiar with, uh, I'm going to call it more traditional liturgical services. Um, so this is kind of just an opinion question. Uh, what do you personally appreciate about traditional liturgical services? So talk about that with your table. Maybe list a few things that you like. So this is all just positive things right now. And then in a second, we'll look at maybe the other side of, okay, liturgical versus, I don't know, the other side. Maybe you'd call it relevant or contemporary or uh, I don't know. So anyways, looking, thinking through liturgical services, uh, I'm sure some of you have enough experience to say something. Um, so what do you like, appreciate about it? Ready? Gasset. Discuss. All right, I'm going to probably interrupt your conversations now for the interest of time. I walked around and heard uh, a couple different comments. One was um, they liked the, the reverence that comes with a traditional liturgical service. Someone else said um, kind of the, the quietness that comes with a more traditional uh, liturgical service, of listening and being quiet. And uh, somebody else said, uh, they like the the calendar and the seasons, uh, and sometimes as as new life we you hear bits and pieces of the seasons like uh, the, the church calendar. Like now we are in the season of Lent, and then, then there'll be the Easter, and then there'll be ordinary time, and then there's there's the Advent and Christmas and the Theophany and all these different seasons within the church calendar, and it's kind of cool to think, wow, there's a bunch of people all over the world doing the same thing and saying the same prayers, if they're, they're literally on the same page of the common book of prayer every Sunday or potentially every day. There's daily prayers in the common book of prayer as well. So it's kind of cool to think, oh, wow, the church, the bride of Christ is all on the same page if you're, if you're within the Anglican stream. That's kind of cool. So there's, there's cool things to appreciate about traditional liturgical services, so much so that our pastor downtown, Glenn, is, is, you know, modeled his church service. It was on Sunday night, now downtown Sunday mornings, uh, with lots of themes coming from the common book of prayer. And uh, one of the things last night when I talked to Glenn, he was like, well, make sure you people know, if they've never been downtown, make sure they know that it's actually very contemporary as well as liturgical at the same time, like a blend of things. So anyways, I want to try to conclude now. And I think there's this much bigger picture of, of maybe what has happened in church history, what is happening at New Life Church. And that is um, this issue of how we do church is like opening a can of worms uh, in many circles. People are very passionate about how, the ways, the style of how you do church. People, sometimes Christians can be the meanest of people uh, when it comes to elements of style and elements of how worship is to be done. And and I think maybe the, this lecture today, uh, I want to kind of build some, some bridges and, and say, let's look throughout church history 
And throughout church history, we see different swings of how church is done. Sometimes swinging towards liturgical, traditional, sometimes leaning uh, to, like, let's do something new, let's do something fresh and relevant to our culture. And, and sometimes it swings too far this way or swings too far the other way. And I've personally been at a church, uh, it was a little Presbyterian church, uh, I was a youth pastor there for just a year, and this little church had a contemporary service and a liturgical service. A liturgical service was earlier and had a lot of older people. The contemporary service was a little later in the Sunday, had a lot of younger people. And I saw this church just like, there was so many like jokes and comments back and forth. It's like two dogs fighting each other within the same church, under the same roof, just different times of worship. One was contemporary, one was liturgical. And the things they would say jokingly uh, about each other were just so mean. And I, I, I sense that maybe there's some of that happening at New Life, where maybe the, the upper northeast side of Colorado Springs, us here, um, looking downtown, say, oh, you know, they're just liturgical. They're, they're, you know, they're doing their own thing. They're arrogant down there and make hurtful jokes or stereotypes about what's going on downtown. And I have heard downtown people make you know, stereotypical jokes of like what happens at New Life Uptown, us, uh, and say, oh, well, it's just, you know, a bunch of, you know, over-emotionalism and it's not a well-thought-out service. You know, no one ever thinks up there. I've heard those things it's said in jest and joking, but gosh, that's, that's the kind of thing that I would hate to see the direction of New Life go, this polarization, this making fun of each other, this not understanding where each other is coming from. And, and so, like I end many Sunday schools uh, with this idea of two sides, a pendulum swinging. Here's a picture of a pendulum swinging from one side to another. On one side would be a traditional, a liturgical church. And all the beauty and all the, the reverence, all the, uh, the tendency to... Uh, to, to not cater to our culture uh, with a traditional service. There's a lot of beauty and a lot of good to that. Uh, let's take direction from people who have gone before us, the church that has gone before us. And maybe there's a swing too far where some people could say, well, it's just ritualistic. It's just too formal. Uh, the phrase going through the motions. I could, I could say something about that as a kid who grew up Catholic. Like as a Catholic kid... Uh, going to church, you see the motions. Literally, if you've ever been, how many of you have ever been to a Catholic service? A couple of you? Lots of you. Great. So you know that there's the sign of the cross every time the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, the, that motion. There's the motion of sitting, the motion of standing, there's the motion of kneeling, there's the motion of, of going around and getting communion. Um, there's all these motions, and you could literally just go through those motions without the knowledge of what they mean. And I would say maybe it was because I was a kid. Maybe it's because I didn't care. Maybe it's because I was burnt out and going to church every Sunday. I don't know. But I, as a kid, would say I went through a lot of motions without understanding what I was doing. And, and I, I see that in people that you know, come from liturgical, traditional services to new life and say, Ah, oh, this is so good. This is, you know, I understand now what we're doing and why we're doing it. This is relevant to me. Um, but then there's the other side of things. The other side says, well, we need to be relevant and connect with our community and, and what's going on in the world today and, and sing songs that are from this century and do things that are, uh, are meaningful to us. And I think of things like 
uh, singing new songs at New Life, um, singing like John Egan's song, Overcome, that came out in 2007. And that's like an anthem for New Life. I mean, we, as a congregation, if you've been around New Life for long enough, you know that there was a scandal here with a senior pastor in 06, a shooting that happened on our campus. And this song, if, if you've heard it before, if, if you haven't, look it up and listen to it. It's kind of an anthem for New Life that we, as New Life, have overcome these things by God's power, by the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, our testimony. We've overcome. And that's a new thing. That's a fresh song, a very relevant song to us as New Lifers. And that's, that's, it's relevant and it connects with us. And, and so maybe we could swing too far sometimes on this side and say, well, let's just cater everything to our American culture and, and just entertain people. And that, of course, would be swinging way too far. And so wherever we're at, and I imagine that in this room, there are some of you that kind of like the more traditional side of things. And you're like, man, yeah, Glenn, I could totally see why Glenn's becoming Anglican. I'm, I'm with him. That's pretty cool. Um, and then on the other side of things, you're like, well, I, I, I'm really for this being relevant thing and being... Um, and maybe the, the liturgical thing doesn't fit into our culture for today, and people see it as an old or too formalized of religion, uh, the, the way in which the church happens. And so let's, let's move to a, a, a way of worshiping that is maybe easier. Maybe you'd say, use the word seeker-friendly. Uh, maybe you'd use the words just relevant or connecting with the people. Um, wherever you're at, um, I think this lecture stands as maybe some sort of direction as to where new life is going. Um, and this, this whole like relevance connection versus church and tradition. And, and my only big thing that I want to say um, is, is let's, not, let's not make hurtful jokes about each side. Let's not make uh, over-stereotypical um, genres of what you know, that they're, what they're doing is right, and what they're doing is wrong, or what they're doing is right, and what they're doing is wrong. Let's learn from each other. Let's, um, let's love each other. And in Christ, ultimately, I think our goal is to please the Lord in our worship. So let's close this time in prayer. And God, we come before you this morning, and um, ultimately, Lord, that is our prayer, that we please you in our worship, that our worship is um, full of of your word, that our worship is full of who you are. Our worship is full of of just you, Jesus, that we worship you and you alone and the ways in which we do so please you, Lord. So ultimately, we love you. We are are part of your creation. As your creation, we love you. You are a creator, created to worship you, and we love you and honor you and praise you with all we do. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.